Hi, and welcome to Way Too Seriously, the podcast where we watch kids' movies and then take them way too seriously. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we watched and we'll be talking about The Secret of Kells. Jan, do you want to tell us a bit about this movie? The Secret of Kells is a 2009 French-Belgian-Irish movie, which Hmm. mostly Irish, I would say. Yeah, the French-Belgian is news to me. Yeah. It was uh, made by Cartoon Saloon, the same com- the same uh, studio that made Song of the Sea. We've done that movie in an earlier episode. Written and directed by Tom Moore, starring the voices of Evan McGuire, Brendan Gleeson, Christian Mooney, and Mick Lally, among others. Paul, do you want to tell us a little bit about what this movie is about? Yes, I do. Brendan is a young boy who lives in a monastery in Kells in Ireland. The abbot is his uncle, and the monks are frustrated that they don't get the chance to illuminate beautiful manuscripts, which is what they are trained to do. They are artists they want to do because the abbot wants them instead to build a wall to protect Kells from the Northmen. The greatest illuminator of the age, Brother Aidan of Iona, arrives at Kells fleeing the Northmen and having brought with him the beautiful Book of Iona, which has been under work for 200 years. Brother Aidan trains Brandon to illuminate the Book of Iona. In the process, Brandon befriends Ashling, a fairy in the forest. But the Northmen come and the wall is not strong enough. Brother Aidan and Brandon flee Kells, and while they are on the run, they complete the book, return to Kells, and Brandon gives it to his sick old uncle who's almost dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, The two of them haven't seen each other for years, and each had believed that the other was killed by the Northmen. And Brendan gives his uncle the book and says, This isn't the Book of Iona, it's the Book of Kells, the book that will turn darkness into light. The end. (laughs) Yeah. That's the main... It's a nice long description of a beautiful movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I maybe went a little more into detail than I often do, and even so, I missed some parts that are pretty important. It's hard not to go into detail with such a detailed movie. That's very so true. Let's, so let's get into that. What do you like, objectively, how good is this movie? I think, I, if we're going to talk about the craft of this movie, I want to start with the animation. Yes. And I want to say something very similar to what I said about the other uh, Cartoon Saloon movie we've talked about. I think I said these words when I, when I talked about The Song of the Sea, and I'm going to say it again. This is just one of the most beautiful movies I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Look, in terms of the quality of animation, it's difficult to imagine any improvement. Like, it's so astounding. I think this one even more so than Song of the Sea, because it is all about illuminated manuscripts, and it itself looks like an illuminated manuscript. And Song of the Sea had beautiful things too that that were kind of like an illuminated manuscript, but it wasn't about that. So it fits both the theme and the beauty of the movie itself. And Song of the Sea had these watercolor painting Mm. as the background and it was all about the water. But it struck me this time that the visual style of it looks like the Book of Kells. Like, there's a lot of the design is reminiscent of the Book of Kells. There's a lot of the style is reminiscent of the Book of Kells. And there's specific images from the Book of Kells, or copies of, obviously, uh, because they're cartoonified slightly Mm -hmm. um, in the movie. 
The other thing it really reminds me of is a stained glass window. Mm, yes. Like it's thick lines and marbled color. Yes. It's that's like true. stained glass windows. And all the times when there's like three, two or three arches and the characters move from one to the other, it's like they're walking across a stained glass window. Yes, that's very reminiscent of. So that. it take it's just an absolutely beautiful movie mm-hmm. visually. Mm-hmm. Like innovative and add to like we talked about song of the sea and how beautiful it is but this came first Mm -hmm. and so song of the sea was like oh they're doing it again yeah this was like nothing i'd seen before Mm -hmm. when it came out it was like no animated movie i'd ever seen before did it win the Oscar? It was nominated. It was nominated. I can't remember if it won. If I think it didn't, like Finding Nemo won. Uh, if, it, if it didn't win, it was robbed. Yeah. There's an aspect of like the beauty of the movie isn't necessarily dependent on whether it was first or second, but it also sort of is. I can imagine that this is something that Tom Moore, the writer and director, is passionate about. And it's like someone's first novel that they've had years to work on and their whole lifetime behind. Yeah. And then they make a second novel and it's just as good, but it doesn't have those years and years of an entire lifetime's worth of thought and care. And that's what Secret of Kells feels like. It feels like a masterpiece. Especially it, visually, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, the themes of, of Song of the Sea are also really very good. And we're not going to go into Song of the Sea because we already have and go listen to that episode. Mm-hmm. I said that Cartoon Saloon reminds me of Studio Ghibli. It's like the Irish Studio Ghibli. And I did a little bit of reading, very little, but mm-hmm. I did a little bit of reading in preparation for this episode and saw that Tom Moore explicitly has said, like, he wanted to be the Irish Miyazaki. He wanted to do what Miyazaki did, which is take Japanese art and folk tales and uh, philosophy and worldview and put it all into children's or animated movies, mm-hmm. and Tom Moore especially, like, children's movies. And so, he did. and so he wanted to do exactly that, but for Irish art yes. and music and philosophy and history. And that's what The Secret of Kells is, and The Song of the Sea also, but The Secret of Kells especially. So mm-hmm. it just, like, that connection to Miyazaki is not a coincidence. It's mm-hmm. something Tom Moore deliberately is looking at Miyazaki as a... Uh, as an inspiration. Yeah, I've watched the like bonus features or director's commentary or something on this DVD that we have. And he, he mentions that the tree in this, the oak tree that, that Brendan, Brandon and Ashlyn climb up, he calls it like a Totoro tree. Hmm. It's very, that's very deliberate reference to like these amazingly big trees that seem fantastical that a person can climb forever. So it definitely is, yeah, on purpose that it reminds you of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the voices? I think the voices are all quite good. Mm-hmm. Brendan Gleeson's performance. I think he's he's the standout performance. I mean, it's not surprising because he's like the star, the person in this movie who came to the movie already with star power. So mm-hmm. it's not maybe surprising. Yeah, he's not a huge star, but I mean... He's he's a known actor. He plays Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter movies. He plays... Who else is he? Other I mean, things. he was in uh, the great, the Grand Seduction. <laughs> Grand Seduction. He played a Newfoundlander. Yeah, he sure did. With his exact same Irish accent, and it was appropriate. Because <laughs> that's how people talk here, too, sometimes. Yeah. Um, his performance, the way that, like, it's so muted. Like, yes, amazingly exactly. muted. Brother Leonardo. <laughs> 
clean yourself up for pity's sake. Almost monotone, incredibly muted, and it gives this emotional, like it makes him feel so weighted down. Yes, exactly. It's such a good choice yeah. and so like effective. Mm-hmm. The child who plays Brandon does a great job and the child who plays Ashling as well. I love some of the lines from from this movie that Ashling says we quote all the time. With her inflection. With her inf- I don't know what you're talking about. You don't want to know. <laughs> Paul says that literally all the time. <laughs> and it's it's partly to our Canadian ears listening to an Irish movie and thinking like, oh, their accents are so musical. But it's also, it's just, I feel like every character has a well-suited voice. You have all the um, monks, all the various, are they monks? Yeah. Yeah. From different countries and they all have their different accents. I can think it does well. You're making a face like. Well, I like was going to maybe say something about that. Maybe in, in a different context. In the way too seriously. We'll get into that. I don't think. Sure I mean, enough. here, if we're talking just about the quality of yes. the voice acting, I think that the monks' accents are not uh, astounding. Mm, true enough. They're all the accented monks are a little caricature mm. in their accents. You may be right. And their voices are distinct from each other and mm. evocative, and but they're a little caricature of the accents. I think maybe you're right. And they're a little caricature the, in other ways that we'll get to, I think. But basically, uh, I mean, this is a cartoon saloon movie. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You just can't get around that. Like, it's one of the most beautiful movies. I would love to see it on the big screen. I didn't, I can't remember if we saw this in theaters. No, we didn't. No? I was doing my master's degree when this came out, and I was kind of, not decided on what my master's was going to be about, but I was partly thinking of researching illuminated manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And then I, someone told me there was this movie that came out this year that was about illuminated manuscript. And it's a cartoon about illuminated manuscripts. And I had been thinking of doing my master's on comic books and illuminated manuscripts right. and the connection between them. And I remember distinctly downloading it on my computer and watching it on my laptop in the Mm -hmm. library with headphones on and then coming home being like jen we need to watch this movie and then we bought it (laughs) yep so i watched it on my laptop for you watched it right because i was just like what is this Mm -hmm. i've never heard of it yeah it's not as well known as many other things it was on Netflix for a while, so I think maybe more people saw it then. It's, at least in Canada, not on Netflix anymore. Mm-hmm. You could purchase it on YouTube, at least. While we're still talking about the quality of the movie. Yes, let's get back to um, I want to uh, point to one other thing I think is a major highlight, and then I have questions mm-hmm. about other parts. So before I move on, the music as a highlight. Oh, yeah, for like, sure. I want to f- mention the music mm-hmm. and how incredibly good it is. And that's partly... The, like, background music, the uh, the score is very, like, Irish folk music mm-hmm. a lot of the time. But also, sometimes they make choices that I think are very good choices. Like, it's this Irish folk music for most of the movie, but when the Norsemen are attacking and Kells is in ruins, what plays is a uh, Latin words to a requiem. Hmm. I don't know which Requiem off the top of my head, but I uh, could look that up. But it's really well chosen. Mm-hmm. It changes the mood very much. Yes, absolutely. And then there's the original song, 
uh, that Ashling sings, and yeah, we're talking about, about the voice actor. She's great in her dialogue, and then when she sings, is like she's so good, beautiful, yeah. and the song is beautiful, and it's I sing it to myself. Yep, me too. Um, that's maybe more just how do you enjoy it, but like the music is a highlight. It's very very well done in every way. Mm-hmm. Are there any lowlights in your mind? In terms of just the quality of the job they do? Not a lot. I can't... I'm trying to think of any and not really. We'll get into some of the way too seriousness of it, and maybe those yeah. are some lowlights. But no, not to me. Is there something for you? If, I think if, only in way too seriously terms. Yeah, like, there's a couple of things in way too seriously that we'll The opening scene with Chasing the Goose... I might say it's a little much with the, like it could have been trimmed a little with mm. the slapstick goofiness of it. That's true. And it doesn't really set you up for what this movie actually is. No, it seems like they're trying to like hook you into they don't worry, this starts with an end in the same, actually the beginning, because the goose chase is funny, but a little much for it goes on past how funny the gag is. And before that, when Ashling is whispering, I don't really love the whispering. I get the effect they're going for. Mm. I have seen suffering in the darkness. Now I see beauty thrive in the most fragile places. Those are quite nitpicky, though. Mm-hmm. So do you want to go on then to talk about... What about your personal experience? How much do you like this movie? More should be how much do I love this movie? (laughs) Because the answer is a lot. I, just in terms of like personal history, you mentioned already that like we watched it years ago when the year it came out and we own it. We've watched it, oh, I don't know, half dozen times, maybe more. Mm Mm-hmm. Several times on our own, and then at least two or three times since we've had kids. I was nervous to watch it with them because the it gets a little scary. They've mostly been okay. Our youngest mentioned that she was a little scared still. Yeah. And she kind of hid under a blanket for the scary parts. But she really wanted to watch it, too. She was It was her choice. Yeah, we gave so, her a couple of mm. options for tonight. She's the one that picked yep. Secret of Kells, and I was secretly, not that secretly, Yay! <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to talk about this. Yeah, the beauty of it is just astounding. And this time around, it touched me in a different way. It made me really cry at the end when uh, the abbot and Brandon see each other again, when Brandon is an adult. And something about that, that they both thought the other one was dead, and they get to see each other again, how happy it is, but yet how sad it is that they could have had more time together. And they could have worked through their issues and stuff, and they never got to. I mean, they presumably, like, I guess the abbot's not dead when the movie ends, but he's implied to be on his deathbed. Yeah. I also, like, got mistier at this ending than I ever have before, and I'm not sure something in the air. Mm -hmm. Um, The moment when the abbot, and I've seen it six times, I know what happens, but he opens his hand and he has that little thing that Brandon drew when he was a boy and he's had it for years and he didn't know Brandon was coming. So he had it in his hand. Yeah. And like, this is what he's clinging to. This is what he's clinging to. And it's about his connection and the moment too, when he says, you know, our, the, our greatest treasure and 
it's ambiguous when he says it, whether that means the book or whether it means Brandon, but then he says he was only a boy. Yeah. And it removes the ambiguity that the greatest treasure was Brandon. Mm-hmm. And Brandon makes the Book of Kells, which is now Ireland's greatest treasure, uh, artistic treasure, mm-hmm. historical, cultural, artistic treasure. And then, like, yeah, I love this movie. I love the things it's about. I'm a medievalist. This is like uh, 800 years earlier than my era. Mm-hmm. But, uh, which, think about how long the Middle Ages is when we're like, it's only 800 years different. It's like, uh, anyway, I'm getting off track. It's stuff that I was really interested in before I ever saw this movie. The like, my, uh, I have family in Ireland and I'm really attached to it. I'm attached to Irish art and uh, music. I've seen the Book of Kells and was really moved when I saw it. So, and Irish monasteries, like I know stuff about Irish monasteries and scriptorums. And uh, so this movie is like, to borrow a phrase, specifically made to delight me. Yes, absolutely. It's like... It hits all of your buttons. Yeah. Every single one of them. I mean, if if Brandon flew around in a cape for a while, then it would be... <laughs> <laughs> that would be ridiculous. No. Uh, it hits all my buttons. Yeah. It's so exactly what I like mm-hmm. in a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. I think this movie, for me, was the first time I think I recognized amazing animation. Yeah. I think that really turned a corner for me in noticing that kind of thing. And and since then, I've noticed animation. And I talk, I mean, I talk a lot about it on this show. But it wasn't until there was a movie where like the animation hits you in the face and is like the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen that I started realizing how much of a craft it was, how much work and time can go into something like that and how beautiful something can be. Yeah. There's a lot of times you can just let a movie happen to you and don't think about it and that's fine. But I don't think this movie lets you get away with it. This movie says, hey, look at me. I'm beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And I can actually see that might not be what some people want from a movie. Yeah. That's always what I want from a movie. Yeah, exactly. Or a book or whatever. And I'm sure some people watch this movie and think it's like completely boring. It's like, it's about making a book. How? And there's lots of times of just like someone walks across the screen and it doesn't make geography metrical sense Mm -hmm. for a while yeah exactly that happened more than once yeah but like oh it's beautiful but i think yeah it's a lovely movie should we get into the way Way, too seriously portion of our show let's indeed all right where would you like to start with the way too seriously um well there's a few different things we could talk about problematic elements or we could gush about the stories and themes and whatnot. Should we talk about let's, the problematic things first? Let's get those first. Let's just get those out of the way, because there are there. We're not going to pretend this is a perfectly perfect movie. No, not at it's all. It's not. And I think maybe what we should start with is race. The monks, especially at the beginning, there's, I think there's something really admirable and, frankly, historically accurate in a way that, as a medievalist, people very, very often pretend that the Middle Ages didn't have diversity and this movie shows racial diversity in this monastery that is accurate Mm -hmm. and 
like well-intentioned. Yeah, there's a monk that is from Africa, a monk that's from uh, like Italy, a monk that's from maybe Germany. There's a monk with a who's like called Sergey, which sounds yeah. Russian. Yeah. There's a monk who's from Asia somewhere. Right. Yeah. But so that's like true. People came to monasteries from all over the world and were monks from all out. Like there were monks from all over the place. The Middle Ages were not uh, homogenous in the way that people imagined that they were. But despite it being well-meaning, mm-hmm. like the, the African monk, first of all, he's African. Like vaguely, uh, we don't care. And that I don't. Maybe mm, is super kind of nitpicky them, because, yeah. like, the well, I mean, there's an Italian, a German, and a Russian, an African, and an Asian, mm. right? Like, uh, the, there's three representatives of specific countries that you can pinpoint in yeah. uh, Europe. That's super nitpicky. What's less nitpicky and more problematic is, like, the African monk is great big uh, red lips, great big, like, he's very... Uh, drawing on stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And the Asian monk is like a little yellow slant-eyed with with a Fu Manchu. Yeah. And like... And frankly, the Italian monk is very like giant mustache, talks like Mario. Yeah. And the accents, we said like the accents are not... I said earlier that the accents veer a little towards the stereotype. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the context of way too seriously going to say more than a little, Hmm. especially the Italian and the African, like the Italian one. I explain for you. We try to catch goose uh, and she run very fast and I fall in the mud. (laughs) Is I fall in the mud. It's very broad. Mm -hmm. And the African one too is like, keep it quiet, Brendan, or the abbot will hear. A very, very broad African, pan-African accent. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's a shame. Yeah. Because on one hand, you're completely right that it's good that they acknowledge that there were people from all over in these monasteries. It wasn't just, you know, this homogenous, you know, oh, it's Ireland, let's make them all redheaded and white. That's not the way it was. So yeah, to have that is good and important. I think that's like what we criticize a lot is is having everybody be white. So it's good that they're there. They're a little on the stereotypical side, though. Yeah, I'd rather they be there. And I mean, I as a white person, uh, maybe my opinion, uh, not maybe, my opinion should be taken with a grain of salt in these issues because it is not my representation that is being done stereotypically. Yeah. But in my judgment, for what that's worth... It's better to have them there a little broad and stereotypical than to erase them completely. Yes. Especially in the Middle Ages, and especially this wasn't in the front of people's minds politically when the movie was made, but it's very in the front of people's minds as we're recording this. White supremacists used the Middle Ages to justify uh, white nationalism. And so a representation of a medieval Irish monastery where there's African, Asian, Italian monks. It's good because it's accurate, and it would be good even if it wasn't accurate, but it's extra good because it is accurate. <laughs> like, that's important that we see that, because we often don't, and we often are allowed or allow ourselves to pretend that the Middle Ages were homogenous. And I think of like things like 
the uh, justification for fantasy, like Game of Thrones. Why is everyone white on Game of Thrones? Because it's medieval. Yeah, but quite aside from, no, it's not, it's imaginary, there's the, the Middle Ages weren't homogenous like that either. So I like this movie. I'd rather see them there than not. But having said that, it's broad and stereotypical. So speaking of a race of people and stereotypical, what do we think of the Northmen or the Vikings and how incredibly non-human they are? Yeah, that... They are... Uh, Sorry to interrupt you. No, go. But the the look of them is very shadowy. They have the horns, which is, we all know, or at least a lot of us know, that those are not historically accurate, the horns in the side of the head. But that is a, a symbolism of Vikings. So they have the horns. Iconography. The, iconography? It is symbolism, but maybe even more specific. Specific iconography, yeah. But the horns, in like, when you see them close up, the horns come like right over their face and they just have glowing red eyes in the middle of these horns. Like, it's not, they don't look human at all. And the monks themselves are stylized and all the humans are, yeah, don't look exactly human. They're stylized, except that these are so stylized that they don't look actually human anymore. Well, and one of the things to keep going on that, like one of the things about the monks that I noticed right away is I've heard a couple of times the rule of character design in animation is your characters should be instantly distinguishable from another in silhouette. Mm -hmm. So if you see their shadow, you can tell which one it is. And if you think about the monks in the monastery, they follow that rule like beautifully. Oh, and it's all about like, they're like geometric shapes. Yeah. Like some of them are square. Some of them are like a half circle. Exactly. Yeah. You could not, there's no, there's no two of the monks that you would mistake for each other, even if you just saw their shadows. Yeah. Whereas the Northmen are all alike. There's no, they're completely interchangeable with each other. Um, so that's another aspect of, like, clearly a deliberate choice. Oh, absolutely. They're a shadowy menace of interchangeable uh, invaders. Thematically, I think it's actually really effective. It is. But if we're going to take way too seriously, like, they're people, though. Mm-hmm. They're not monsters. And it's complicated because Vikings did very monstrous things. Yeah. And even more specifically, like to be pedantic about it, Viking is a job, not a race. A a Norse person could go and be a Viking and being a Viking is go traveling around looting. So Viking is not a people. It's a job. Mm -hmm. And like, it's a job of burning things down and and pillaging and destroying and killing. And so it's a little bit like drawing Nazis as inhuman monsters yeah that's not saying that germans are inhuman monsters but it's saying that nazi ss or stormtroopers not nazi stormtroopers and like we're historically removed from vikings by a long way but still like i don't know they were yeah they were doing these things they were acting evil and the analogy to nazis is a like one i'm using deliberately i'm not pulling a Godwin's law mm-hmm. and like making that analogy deliberately and thoughtfully yep. because 
yeah, maybe it was culturally expected, or ex- but these are people who chose a specific occupation or a specific activity yeah. that involved killing people. And the shot of them like coming in, burning the village down, killing children. Vikings did that. Yep, they sure did. So it's problematic to dehumanize people, even your enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some strong thematic resonance to like they represent darkness historically uh and they're undifferentiated because they're behaving in a way that undif- that is dehumanizing so they end the movie dehumanizes them i don't know it's complicated it is complicated and the i would have liked maybe a little change when they're a mob altogether they can all be the same. They do meet a single Viking in the woods and then like two more. Yeah. But they meet a single one and maybe he could have had a face. Maybe he could have been human and that would have been also a thematic statement. Exactly. Or a thematic statement. So I just think like that slight change could have helped a little bit. But I agree with what you're saying. It's difficult when it's very representational and not very literal that these yeah. these uh northmen are coming in and they're a lot like i mean <laughs> the wolves are the same they're black shadowy red-eyed uh and there's a part of me that's like wolves aren't like that either yeah but wolves are animals i know i know there's and it's big, not the same there is a very big difference yeah but here's where my way too seriously of it is that like Actual wolves get hunted to extinction because people are afraid. Like sharks, they get represented as these mindless killing machines when they're actually mm. not like that, right? And from an ecological perspective, representing wolves as mindless killing machines is problematic not as much as dehumanizing humans is, but is problematic because wolves are endangered and they're not just like kill everything they see animals. Yeah, that's true. So... That to say that, like, the iconography connects the Vikings to the wolves and connects them both to, like, the darkness. I think it's a mistake to dehumanize the Vikings too much. I like what you're saying about, like, we should have met one Viking who was human and he still could have been evil. Mm -hmm. But an evil human. Yeah. But I think there's, like, yeah... I don't have a really a but. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a very, it's a nitpick because I I think that the artistic choices in this movie are generally very good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I hate to be critical of any of the artistic choices in this. So there's one girl, there's one female character mm-hmm. in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. What do we think about that? There's actually two. Only one with a name. Is Ashling, but there is a little girl who tries to help the abbot at the end. Does she speak? She dances. She does she, not. She speak. reaches for the snowflakes and dances in the snow when the Vikings are coming, and then she reaches. She tries to help the abbot. Mm-hmm. That's the girl. Yeah, I'm thinking of. You're thinking of the same one. Yeah, I mean it is a monastery. Yeah, there are various villagers that we kind of see in the background, some of which are female. Yeah. But yeah, there's only one named female character, and she's a fairy. Yeah. So she's not even a human, really. Yeah. 
I basically, I'm inclined to give this movie a pass on there being one female character because it's set in a monastery because it is, I'm the degree that I don't give it a pass is it's one more in hundreds of movies. Yes, exactly. But on its own merits, like there's stronger than usual reason for this is a monastery and they're all monks. Yeah. And then when he goes out of the monastery, he meets a girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? And the villagers, there are female villagers, but none of the villagers are characters. And that's none fine. And they, I don't think they should be. Yeah. Uh, so on this movie's own merits, I'm kind of inclined to give it more of a pass than I usually do for that. Yeah. Except that then Song of the Sea, uh, their second movie, also has only one girl and she's the magical girl. And has the granny too. Yeah, it has its own issues there. But yeah, you're right. I I'm inclined to agree that that I can give this movie a bit of a pass because of its subject, but it's also one in a million yep. others that has an all male cast, and yep. it is just a systemic problem that needs to continually. Sp- be worked at yeah and we'll give them credit for in song of the sea they didn't do that as much and in uh their newest movie the breadwinner which i still have not seen it is it was at the festivals but i don't know if it's had a wide release yet certainly hasn't been released here yet regardless that is about a girl like the main character is a girl in that so we'll see we'll see what happens there what do you think about um Ashling as a character, it's good that uh, when he leaves the monastery, when Brendan meets the mo- leaves the monastery, he meets a girl. There's, so there is a female character. But mm-hmm. what do you think about the humans are male and the fairy magical creature is female? Mm, I didn't think about so that. So she's representative of nature. She's a ma- representative of mysticism. She's a representative of the good pagan Ireland. In this movie, Pagan Ireland has a good and an evil face. Crom Crucht is the evil face of Pagan Ireland and is male. Uh, Though they didn't invent Crom Crucht. He's an Irish god that pre-existed. But uh, an Ashling is the face of the benign nature kind of Pagan Ireland. I'm saying Pagan because the language of the movie. But um, And she's female. So what do you think of magical mystical girl i hadn't really thought about it until now but you make a good point that or i assume you're about to make a good point (laughs) in that it does uh make women into the other Mm. once again it's hard not to give this movie a bit of a pass because of what it's about because it's about a monastery and so it's good that when he leaves the monastery he encounters some something that he can't encounter within which is a someone both magical but also female agreed so despite often my complaints about this kind of thing where oh of course the woman has to be so other and mystical and magical but in this she actually is she's not just representing that she actually is a mystical creature and she's also and i yeah, I totally agree. And what you just said about another example of this is a movie I kind of want to give a pass for doing a thing that I would criticize in a lot of other movies because exactly as you say, 
outside of the monastery is here where he meets things that aren't in the monastery. Yeah. And that's everything about her. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, just makes so much sense for the story this movie is telling. I feel like this movie is a way to do that well. Yeah. To succeed at having a magical other. Yeah. And I mean, the imagery of Kells is this big tower. And then you go out of the big tower where all the men are, and you have the bushy leaves where they're, you have female. I mean, like, I'm being really Freudian. But visually, the tower is a great big phallic object, and yep. you leave it, and you have yonic symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you meet the female. <laughs> the female. I mean, in like a capital F Freudian way. Yep. I mean, like... So this movie and the, again, to be super Freudian, the abbot is also like this great big, uh, tall pillar, tall pillar of a man mm-hmm. who wants to build a wall to protect his phallus <laughs> <laughs> and it fails because yep. that doesn't work. Cause that doesn't work. Uh, so there's an aspect of this movie being like actually about masculinity and femininity mm-hmm. thoughtfully yes yeah not sense. just like masculine is the default but like if we're gonna talk about a monastery let's actually talk about masculinity and yes. they don't i don't know that they talk about it but they represent it they and represent it visually it. yeah you're right they do that's a good point yeah they represent it visually um the other thing that they represent in this movie and i mean to get away from the more problematic elements is this christian monastery where there's people of two minds there's the abbot Mm -hmm. and probably others that we don't see that agree with him who are saying build this wall build this place around us and we're protecting the people from this invading force and they will know the they'll be converted to Christianity by our walls because we'll protect them from the outside invaders. Mm-hmm. And then there's the artists who say they will know we are Christians by this beauty and this uh, these manuscripts that we can share that we can know the like see the light of god Mm -hmm. in these manuscripts and until i actually started saying this i was thinking that both of these sides were equal in some ways but talking about a wall to keep people out is very pertinent in today's world and i'm kind of like don't build wall don't build wall but on the (laughs) other hand there's a practical side to help people with their actual needs. People can't eat the Bible. Right. They need to be protected. They need to have food and shelter and Christian organizations that provide relief and aid, I feel like, do a better job of showing Christ-like uh, initiatives than those that just say, here, have a Bible, even though you're starving. Or have, you know, look at this beautiful artwork that doesn't help people. So, like, I'm, uh, I'm of two minds because I can kind of see where both of those sides fit together. 
And so I can take this metaphor of like the wall as cutting yourself off and thinking you're protecting when you're not. But also I can see it as helping people with their practical needs. Yeah. And there's a, I think the way the movie does it is like the abbot is misguided, but only barely. He's an antagonist. He's the antagonist to Brandon, but he's not evil or bad no. or anything like that. And he's so, and a lot of what Brendan Gleeson's performance brings to it is this, like, he doesn't want, he would rather, what I get from Brendan Gleeson's performance is that he would rather be an illuminator and an artist. That's what he wants to be doing. Yeah. But his responsibilities, he sees them as for responsibility to protect the people around him. And yes, that is a real responsibility. If you are a person in power as the abbot, mm-hmm. you can either go in the scriptorium and draw beautiful pictures all day, or you can try to protect the people who are under, under your care and see to their actual physical needs. And if he had built a bigger, stronger wall, maybe he could have protected them, their bodies. Yeah. But a movie lands on, like, that's misguided. Brother Aiden, who we are really sympathetic to, and he makes the Book of Kells, and he teaches Brandon and mentors him, like, when the Norsemen come, he runs and doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... <laughs> he saves the artwork. He saves the artwork. And Aiden's perspective is centuries long. Mm-hmm. He's working on this thing that's 200 years old and will last, as we know, uh, you know, a thousand more years, 1500 more years. Like it was 900 is when the Book of Kells was completed and it's 2017 now. It's 2018. It's 2018 now and the Book of Kells is still moving people, Mm -hmm. including me personally, right? But... The needs of the people immediately around you aren't nothing. Like, so it's not, I don't think that it is facile. Yeah. And we see that within the walls are all of these uh, little tents and things where people are living and gardens. Yeah. And food and people tending to all of these different gardens. And so it's obvious that the people are doing agriculture there and having food yeah. In a way that they couldn't out with without the walls. Without the walls. I mean, in the the geography of it doesn't make literal sense. The no. size of things. No. But this is again accurate, right? Like a monastery or a church would be the center of a community, and all the people would be centered in. You'd either be centered around the church or the castle. And if there isn't a castle, it's the monastery or church. And the people, the villagers, gather around, and the monastery has responsibility for the people all around them. And the part that really, I think, puts a finger on the perspective that the movie ends up having is that when the abbot says, it's a wall, it's, it's not my wall, it's a wall to save civilization. Not my wall, Aiden. A wall to save civilization. A wall to save your book. And this is where, like, the abbot is misguided mm-hmm. because he has confused his short-term perspective is important, but he has confused his short-term perspective for the long view. 
he thinks he has the long view when he has the short view, right? Yes, absolutely. He thinks the wall is going to save civilization when the best the wall is going to do is save the people who live with you right now. Mm -hmm. The wall is not going to save civilization. The book is going to save civilization. And having the phrase save civilization, I just want to point out how this is a movie about the Irish saving civilization. Uh, I think the reference to the book by Thomas Cahill, How the Irish Saved Civilization, is not a coincidence. Hmm. This is a movie about light and darkness in Ireland. Two of the chapters of that book are Dark Pagan Island, uh, Shifting World of Darkness, Pagan Ireland, and A Solid World of Light, Christian Ireland. Hmm. So the book, specifically the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, is specifically about how Irish monasteries save civilization by producing books and art and also specifically refers to the Irish, the dark Ireland and light Ireland. But isn't that painting like, oh, the old Irish religion was all terrible and bad? Like, what was bad about it? Yeah, Thomas Cahill is. I don't think this movie is. But I think Mm -hmm. uh, it's adopting his language. Hmm, Interesting. Well, put a link to that book in the show notes, hey? Yeah, it's a a book worth reading. Although, Mm -hmm. as I said, he paints pagan Ireland as, like, bad and dark and terrifying. And I think this movie... Has a bit more nuance. Yeah, it fuzzies the line, which I think is a good idea, between, you know, Crum Cruick is real. Mm Mm-hmm. And... But also not real. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, when Brandon goes to see him, he's a chalk drawing, he defeats him with chalk... But also, he really gets the eye, yeah. and it's really a crystal that he takes back. And so, and Brother Aiden is just like, well, it's another story. It's another, you know, it's another way of getting it. And and so it's showing like this meeting of the current religion of Ireland and the imported religion of Ireland, and how they're meshing together and. I know that some people would be really offended by the fact, by like, that Christians took over that, but I feel like it's more of a blending. It's more of a bringing well, I mean, together. I think there's different ways of viewing it, and we could get moved to that next. But I think the most charitable way of viewing it is that what Brennan does is uh, redeem the Irish religion, so that he takes Crom Cruicht, who, by the way, we don't know for sure, but he's an Irish god who who people human sac- who accepted human sacrifice. Right. So the Irish did human sacrifices to Crom Cruicht before St. Patrick came, supposedly. So Crom Cruicht, as a choice for their god, who's like the god of darkness and evil, mm-hmm. uh, makes historical sense, right? Yeah. But one of the things that symbolically what Brandon does is takes the eye of Crom Crooked and turns it into the eye of Column Hill because what he's doing is not just adopting and muddying the Irish religion, but he's redeeming it mm. in what theologically I might say is the same sentiment as the sentiment in Joy to the World, that the sacrifice of Christ redeems the world, redeems all parts of the world. Hmm. Far as the curse is found, nothing is so bad that it can't be redeemed. 
Interesting. I like a that. less charitable view is this is a movie about monks that never mentions God and it doesn't really care about like any of the gods it's talking about except as kind of pieces to play with. Hmm. Uh, and it doesn't take any of them seriously. Yeah. I realize we didn't actually define the Book of Kells. Yeah. This book, this movie is about making the Book of Kells, which is a real book, which is the Bible. Yeah, it's the Not, four Gospels. It's the four Gospels, so it's part of the Bible. Yeah, the Book of Kells, The con- I was going to hopefully uh, get to that, although when, I don't know, we should maybe have a section at the end, or maybe right now, talking right about now. like history and what is going on in this movie and how it relates to history, because one of them is... The Book of Kells, the content of the Book of Kells is the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Latin. And what you could watch this movie and not know that. Mm-hmm. You could watch this movie and think that the Book of Kells is a picture book of be- of nature. Yep. A lot of the Book of Kells is just text. Like, there's illuminated pages and there's marginalia, but there's not marginalia on every page. And some pages are just text. Very well like very beautifully written, even the text, in what's called the uh, Irish Insular Hand, which is a script unique to Ireland that the credits of this movie are in a script that is reminiscent of that. Mm. And it's these very rounded letters. But there's something in terms of the way too seriously of this movie that like it wants to take the Book of Kells seriously, but it also doesn't want to take the Book of Kells seriously. Right. And with what turns darkness into light is like a pretty picture mm-hmm. or is sublime and transformative art or is knowledge or it like it doesn't. And maybe if I'm going to be too seriously about it, not as a problematics, but as a like, what is your theme? Is it good or bad that the movie like, just doesn't quite land its finger on what exactly it is that turns darkness into light. Mm. Is it their religion or is it their art? And if it's their art, is it just beauty is transformative or is it uh, like artistic insight that's transformative? The argument in How the Irish Save Civilization, the history book, is that the monasteries saved knowledge Hmm. and they saved which is true like greek and latin philosophy and science books Hmm. they didn't only copy the bible they copied science and philosophy that we wouldn't have if the irish hadn't if the irish monasteries hadn't copied them that's really cool i didn't know that yeah yeah Interesting. All interesting. I mean, I feel like you in particular could say a lot about the history of this because it's your field. Um, I mean, again, sort of. Sort of. I mean, like a lot more than it's hundred years off in a different island. A lot more than it's anybody else's field. I mean, the, me or, you know. <laughs> Is there anything more we want to say about the series, about the seriously of this movie before I kind of... I would like to, if you, with your permission, just mention a few of the historical details. Is there anything else seriously we want to talk about before I indulge myself in doing that? I feel like there could be thousands of things to say, but I think that it's a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful story. And 
in terms of good or seriously good, it's definitely both. Yeah. Definitely good and seriously good. So let's spend a little bit of time here at the end with a little more history lesson from, or manuscript lesson or what from Paul. Well, there's a few things I just want to like point out, not really analyze, but just Mm -hmm. look how cool this is. Absolutely. Go ahead. One of them is... In terms of Irish mythology, we have three different mythologies at play here, and they're all really cool and interesting, because Crom Crucht is an Irish god who is newer than an older pantheon of Irish theology, who are the Tuatha de Danon, who Ashling is a representative of. She's the fairy, and so in the movie, she says that Crom Crucht killed her people. Basically, that's historically accurate, that... Crom uh, Crucht worship replaced Tuatha Du Danon, sort of. They were sort of contemporaneous, but uh, it kind of one phased out and the other one led, the other one came. And then Christianity ended Crom Crucht worship, and the Tuatha Du Danon continued to be something that is, exists in Irish mythology, but doesn't exist as a religion at all. And the Tuatha Du Danon. Often people interpret it as being uh, representative of the the, uh, indigenous inhabitants of Ireland who were not Celtic, but were displaced by Celtic immigrants from Scotland. Uh, We talked about this in the Song of the Sea episode. Yeah. So that's neat and just interesting how mythology and and theology and all all that's super interesting to me. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll point out that in a little flashback, Brother Aiden builds himself a beehive hut out of stone, a stone beehive hut. And that's just like the stone beehive huts that uh, Luke Skywalker and Rey <laughs> live in in The Last Jedi, because that happens on an Irish, that was filmed on an Irish island. And that's just a really cool little detail. And if mm-hmm. you listen to our Star Wars episode, which only three of you can. <laughs> If you listen to our Star Wars episode, which is a Patreon exclusive, uh, but we talk about that just a little bit, and it was fun to see it again here. The manuscripts, a lot of the way the manuscripts happen in this movie is not accurate. Like, for example, you would not be carrying around a bound book with pages not drawn in yet. Like, that makes no sense. Mm. You wouldn't have an entirely bound book and then write in it. Um, but the way that he has the sheets are, uh, on this frame stretched out and then he's drawing on it, that's pretty accurate and really interesting because of course the Book of Kells is not written on paper, it's written on vellum and you can see there it's this stretched out calf skin is what Brandon is writing on to practice. And so the moment when he like spills ink on it. That's not scrap paper. It's not like chalk like he draws on in his bed. He's just ruined a piece of vellum, which is not like you have to kill a calf to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Book of Kells is written on good quality vellum. So that's interesting. Um, I could say more about the Book of like the Book of Kells. I'll maybe just add one more thing, which is if. It, I hope some of my our listeners have had the privilege of seeing the Book of Kells in person. It's at Trinity College in Dublin. 
you can just, you could, when I was there 10 years or so ago, just go to the library and it's there. It's under glass, but you can just walk in and see it. And they turn the page every couple of days and it is astounding. And it really does look like it's glowing. Like the colors are so vibrant and it, the gold and the, uh, it looks like there's light coming from it. It is beautiful, smaller than I imagined it would be. Hmm. Um, but astounding. Mm-hmm. And if I hope some of you have had the privilege, and I'd love to hear your experience of seeing the Book of Kells if you have. And if you haven't, go to Dublin and go to Trinity College Dublin and tell them Paul sent you. <laughs> no, they won't know who I am. <laughs> but go see the I would love to. Book like, of Kells. One of these days we've got to go back so I can go and see it. There's another, the Book of Kells is the, probably the most famous uh, manuscript, illuminated manuscript, the end. Uh, there's another one, the Lindisfarne Gospels, which are about the same time, not quite as uh, lavish in the illustration, but only just barely not quite. Mm-hmm. They're also in Ireland, made in Ireland. I don't know where they're held right now, but I bet you could go see those also. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a book, the Lindisfarne Gospels, but it's the same thing. It's the Gospels. Yeah. Even if you ever get the experience to touch and see some of these illuminated manuscripts, some of these manuscripts from this time when they're when they're printed on, like, or handwritten on vellum is fascinating. I got to Look at I've seen rare book collections at different libraries, and it's amazing. And you have to like sometimes you have to wear gloves and don't wear gloves. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a debate amongst people is to wear gloves or not wear gloves. But uh, to see something that's been hand written in and looks absolutely beautifully written, even without the illuminations like the Book of Kells has, it's still. It's a fascinating experience. If you love books and you ever get a chance to go to the rare books part of a a university, usually university library, do it. I think some of the people listening to this program may uh, know, may work at university libraries or are associated with universities. So like, go check out your rare books. They're, they're really cool. And vellum, like if you haven't ever held vellum, like it's more like leather than it is like paper. Mm -hmm. It's thick and it's, you know, it's made of calf skin, uh, usually. Mm-hmm. I think it's sometimes uh, sheep skin, but vellum is usually calf skin. And you can see the difference between the the uh, inside and the outside of the skin, which is a little bit gross if you think about it too much, but is also just fascinating. So they always, a good manuscript will arrange things so that you always have inside and inside facing pages. And then you turn the page and you have outside and outside so that the two pages are the same color, but the inside will be a lighter color than the outside. So the pages will go from light sepia to dark sepia as you turn pages and they're thick and their vellum manuscripts will last longer than paper manuscripts. There was a real debate when paper started to pick up uh, popularity in Europe because Duffy people said this newfangled print paper technology, it's going to last, what, 500 years if you're lucky. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this, I'm 
not joking. This is an actual debate. Yep. Because uh, vellum will last thousands of years. Paper, 500 years if you're lucky. Most paper that, like pulp paper that you're printing on in the 20th century, that's got 50 years if you're lucky. Oh, yeah. Uh, we preserve newspapers in my library. And there are newspapers from the turn of the last century, so the 1800s. And we say about them, like, sure, you can look at them. You can see them use gloves or whatever. They're not going to last. There's literally nothing we can do to make these newspapers last because they're printed on garbage. They're, They're meant to be garbage. And we want to preserve them for history's sake, but they can't last forever. And you think, oh, well, why don't we just digitize all of them? This is, we're getting so off topic. I know, but, but we're kind of going we, into our field. But this is a something we love, so we're going to talk about it. This is our podcast. We'll do what we want. <laughs> um, you think maybe, oh, well, can't we just digitize all this old paper stuff so we can't lose it forever? Except that, well, 20 years ago, digitizing something meant putting it on like a floppy disk. How, and like, who's reading that now? It's the technology is changing too quickly to digitize things because you can't, what's possible now will be very different in the future. And so things like, say, microfilm is actually better than digitizing things because microfilm is readable without any, you have special microfilm readers, but you can read it without anything. And the best of all is vellum. Best of all, kill yeah. animals to make your books is what I'm telling you. <laughs> Before we wrap up, we went on an enormous digression, but I want to just add one more thing in terms of the history, and that is the cat in this is called Pangerban. Right. Pangerban is the name of a medieval Irish poem about ninth century, so it's right. It's accurate. That it's about the same time as the Book of Kells. Mm-hmm. Like the movie, I guess, is saying that Brother Aiden wrote that fam- that famous anonymous Irish poem. Right. And he could have, mm-hmm. in terms of the timing. Yep. Pengerbon is a poem in Irish about a cat. After the music, I'll read Pengerbon in translation by Seamus Heaney. Just if you're interested, and if you're not, you can turn it off after the music. Is there anything else we want to say? I think we've said a lot. I think we've said an awful lot. If you have any questions about any of the stuff we've talked about today, we've thrown around some like words that are very specific to Paul's field that I'm familiar with because I've been living with you for a long time. Uh, So if you have any questions about what some of the terms Paul throws around, like marginalia, Hmm. give us a shout out on Twitter, at WTScast. And Jan talked about archiving techniques, and she could ask her about that. She would love to talk to you about archiving. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> you could also do that at WDS Cast. Or you can send us an email, waytoseriouslycast at gmail.com. You can uh, talk to us on, we're also on Reddit, on Facebook, on Instagram, on all the things. Links are in the show notes. I think we'll try to have some extra historical and things links in our show notes this time for this episode so look for that and uh, thanks for listening I've been Paul Moffat I've been Jan Moffat you must go where I cannot (laughs) 
Pangerban, a 9th century Irish poem translated into English by Seamus Heaney. Pangerban and I are at work, adepts, equals, cat and clerk. His whole instinct is to hunt, mine to free the meaning pent. More than loud acclaim, I love books, silence, thought, my alcove. Happy for me, a panger bond, child plays round some mouse's den. Truth to tell, just being here, housed alone, housed together, adds up to its own reward. Concentration, stealthy art. Next thing, an unwary mouse bears his flank. Panger pounces. Next thing, lines that held and held meaning back begin to yield. All the while, his round, bright eye fixes on the wall, while I focus my less piercing gaze on the challenge of the page. With his unsheathed, perfect nails, Panger springs, exalts, and kills. When the longed-for, difficult answers come, I too exult. So it goes, to each his own. No vying, no vexation. Taking pleasure, taking pains, kindred spirits veterans. Day and night, soft purr, soft pad, Pangerbon has learned his trade. Day and night, my own hard work solves the cruxes, makes a mark.